O Lord, our Lord, please meet us in your word. We are prone to sin. Grant that we may experience thy restraining grace. That at the sound of thy voice, we flee temptation. That in the moment of decision, we see you as more beautiful. That at our weakest point, you infuse us with strength to resist. We are prone to sin. And we are also prone to doubt after we sin. So grant that we may hear thy assuring voice. Assuring us that by thy stripes we are healed. That you were bruised for our iniquities. That you were made sin for us. That our sins are buried in the sea of your cleansing blood. We are guilty but pardoned. Lost but saved. Wandering but found. Sinning, but cleansed. That would be sufficient, Lord. Grant thy restraining grace and thy assuring voice. This is our corporate plea. Amen. What we have in our text is a portrait. Two portraits, actually. A portrait of John and then a portrait of Christ. We will see John and where he's walking. Then we will see Jesus and where he is walking. John walking on a volcanic island. And Jesus walking among his churches. A portrait of John having white hair. And a portrait of Jesus having white hair. A portrait of John working hard. And a portrait of Jesus working hard. A portrait of one who thinks he's going to die. And a portrait of one who's already died and came back to life. A human portrait and a divine portrait. So that's what I have for you. Two portraits followed by five applications. (laughs) I'm taking a risk today because the five applications will help you understand the two portraits. Uh, you're You're going to struggle to rightly understand the two portraits without the applications. I know that but I'm still going to give you the two portraits first. This passage is meant to tax your mind beyond its ability, to keep you a little disoriented. I'm waiting to save the aha moment to the end. It's a risk. The elders and my wife will let me know later if it's a risk I should not have taken. (laughs) But we're in it now. Let's begin with a portrait of John. We know from verse 9 that John is on an island of Patmos. What's what's he doing on that island? Is he taking a resort vacation, wearing Hawaiian swimming trunks? Is he sitting poolside holding a, a drink with a little umbrella in it, working on his tan, his nose covered in white sunscreen? No. John isn't on an island vacation. He's on an island prison. Patmos was a a penal settlement. It was an eight-mile by five-mile island where offenders were sent. It was first-century Alcatraz. Criminals, murderers, thieves, abusers, Roman traitors were exiled to this volcanic island and forced to deal with the rugged terrain. 
They were sent there to labor and die. None of them thought they would leave the island, including John. The inmates were forced to work stone quarries. It was brutal, sometimes deadly labor. These ill-fed, ill-clothed men were under a watchful eye and a ready whip. Why was John sent to this small, rocky island of Alcatraz? Well, verse 9 tells us, he was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. John wasn't there because he robbed a bank. He was there because of his faithful, uncompromising, courageous preaching of Jesus Christ. Origen, who was born maybe 90 years after John was exiled to Patmos, said that the emperor Domitian sent John to Patmos himself. Domitian was a moral catastrophe of a man. It's rumored he poisoned his brother Titus with a sea hare, basically a fish dinner. He was extremely vain and self-conscious. He had spindly legs and a protruding belly and, and was Mr. Sensitive about his baldness. Crack a ball joke and he may put you to death. He seduced and impregnated his niece. Some say he killed her by trying to perform an abortion. John MacArthur says he exiled another niece to Patmos for political reasons. Domitian's paranoia seized him. In order to obtain information on possible rebels and plots on his life, he cut off hands and scorched genitals. Did he do that to John? I don't know. Tertullian, who was born 50 years after John was on Alcatraz, said John was exiled after he was plunged into boiling oil. See, Domitian revived what was called treason trials, where informants could turn on anyone su suspected of subversive philosophies or superstition, which was basically any religion that was suspect. Some witness must have turned John in and he was viewed as a criminal member of an illegal sect. Cases were tried individually and sometimes the guilty were killed and sometimes they were banished to Patmos. So there he is, John, possibly with third degree burns, laboring an insane number of hours in the rock quarry. He's not a young man, he's old. Most scholars estimate he's 80. Unlike Domitian, he's got hair, but it's thin and white. All the other apostles are already dead. Peter, crucified upside down. Paul, who started most of the churches in Revelation, beheaded. Thomas, killed by spears. Matthew, stabbed to death. James, stoned and clubbed. John is the last living apostle. We have a portrait of an old, white-haired, feeble senior citizen sitting on a piece of volcanic rock with a quill in hand, writing on parchment. What's he writing? Let's zoom in and read verse 4. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. 
Unlike modern letters where we put our name at the end, ancient letters put their name at the beginning. John to the seven churches. I could spend 50 minutes just on this greeting. It's, it's so thick with content. It really makes me want to ask, John, couldn't you have just said, hello? John has three main problems. He's alone and hungry. He's being persecuted. And he's in immense physical pain. He has a trinity of problems, but he doesn't mention any of them. He doesn't lay out his trinity of problems, but instead he gives a Trinitarian greeting. We see the three persons of the Godhead here. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. God the Father is described as the one who is and was and who is to come. You think John would put this in the proper time dimension. Past, present, and future. The God who was, who is, and who is to come. But John goes with the present tense first. The God who is. God is a present tense God. He is present with John and sustaining him. How has John endured all of this? Well, what does the verse say? By God the Father's very present grace and peace. So we just pass over those words grace and peace quickly because they're so often presented to us in letters. But there are no scrap words in scripture. John is testifying how he's surviving Alcatraz. God the Father is and was. That's a declaration of God's eternality. His self-existence. There was a common saying floating around about a Roman God in that day and it went like this. Zeus was, Zeus is, and Zeus will be. John is showing these churches, it may seem like the Roman gods are winning, but they are cheap imitations of our God. God the Spirit is referred to here as the seven spirits. Fifty-five times in this book you find the number seven. Seven is used both literally and figuratively in the book. Seven churches, that's literal. Seven spirits, that's figurative. Seven is the number of perfection back in Genesis. This is God's perfect spirit. The spirit Jesus promised to send to his followers when he ascended into heaven 40 days after his resurrection. Verse 5. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. That's the Trinity and that's the order. But notice that John changes the Trinitarian formula. He mentions Jesus Christ last. This is the only time this happens. Why the change from all the other Trinitarian greetings in Scripture? John is showing you where he's going to place the emphasis in this book. Jesus Christ is going to be the center, the axis, the goal, the objective, the target. There is a triple designation used to describe Christ. One, faithful witness. John was exiled to that island because of an unfaithful witness accusing him of superstition. One, faithful witness. Two, the firstborn from the dead. Jesus was the firstborn. He did what no one else did. He died and rose never to die again. He was the first with a resurrected body. Other people were resurrected, but with their old bodies. Jesus is the inaugurator of the new creation with new bodies. He is the first, but he will not be the last. 
He is the first to conquer death, but not the last. Faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, ruler of kings on earth. <laughs> Jesus is the sovereign Lord of history. Church, there will be prime ministers and presidents and tribal chiefs and Rome will have its demissions. But John says, you seven churches, I want to remind you, you are not at the mercy of Rome and its emperor. Jesus rules over all. This is so countercultural. It flies in the face of the whole Roman imperial system. Domitian thought himself absolute ruler of all. And he took pride in calling himself Lord and God. Here's what Jesus, ruler of the kings on earth, means. It means Jesus is never anxious about his political fate. He's seated on his rightful throne where he will remain forever. He laughs at governmental coups and elections. He controls who becomes kings and who doesn't. He can bring kings down. He regulates what kings can do. And as king of all, he has authority to claim citizens everywhere. We have here a Trinitarian greeting. But let's peer a little closer into this portrait of John. Let's look past the Trinitarian greeting and down to the words by his frail arthritis-ridden hands. At the end of verse 5 through verse 8, a doxology just kind of breaks out on John. It's a doxological explosion. It's, it's highly liturgical, even hymnic. The portrait of John is, is changing. See, here's what I didn't tell you before. This is a moving portrait. He's now standing and, and lifting his frail skin and bone arms into the air, and he's spewing soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. He's singing of salvation. Verse 5b. To him who loves us. This is present tense. We tend to think that God loved us. Sometime in the distant past. John is reminding himself and his readers this is present tense. Skin is falling off my bones and my life is falling apart. But God loves me. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Church, this is what theologians call penal substitutionary atonement. The penalty, the penalty for our sins was paid by the sacrificial blood of Christ. He secured the price for our release. P.P. Bliss had it right. Guilty, vile, and helpless we spotless lamb of God was he full atonement can it be hallelujah what a savior it's substitution like in a game you substitute one player for the other Jesus took our place this was a unique unrepeatable event we've been freed from something and for something verse 6 and made us a kingdom Priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Mounts pointed out that the early church understood itself to be the true succession of Israel. And thus the inheritors of all the blessings promised to their spiritual predecessors. 
Corporately, they are a kingdom. And individually, they are priests. Priests? What? We are not a group that has priests. But we are priests. Priest speaks of our access to God. John says, I'm a prisoner, but I'm a priest. Verse 7, behold. That's a word used 213 times in the New Testament, 26 times in the book of Revelation. It means, look, pay attention, listen carefully. Behold, Jesus is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. John moves from salvation to consummation. Jesus will come again visibly, personally, and gloriously. John is remaining healthy emotionally and spiritually. How is he doing that on Patmos? How is he remaining healthy emotionally and spiritually? Here's how. He has a robust doctrine of the second coming of Christ. It is so vital for your sanity. It will help you endure Alcatraz. This will not be a local event. This is not one tribe in Jerusalem seeing it, but people from all nations and all tribes will tear their clothes and lament. This is the doctrine of the second coming of Christ. He's coming to judge the world. People will mourn. John is reminding these scattered churches, the people making us well will one day be wailing themselves. How comforting for these struggling Christians to hear. Those of you that are non-Christians, it's a mercy It's a mercy that Jesus hasn't come back yet. He's giving you time to repent. You will either be a wailer or a worshiper. Don't wail, but worship. John, after waxing eloquent on the second coming, says, even so, amen. That's that's words of affirmation in Greek, then in Hebrew. John just used the word amen twice. Once in verse 6 and then once in verse 7. Amen. A little word that means, let it be so. Or, it is true. In English, we might say, yes. Say it. Mm -hmm." (laughs) Mm-hmm. When you hear, we don't don't do amen around here a lot. I'd I'd love for you to talk back to me more often. We don't do a lot of amens around here. We do do a lot of holy grunts. I I like it. When you hear people say amen around here, they may say it while we are praying, they may say it while I'm preaching, but here's what it means. Let it be. It is true. John goes on to say Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. That's the first letter of the Greek alphabet and the last. Jesus is A to Z. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. He's in control of this world and the next. He's in control of this island. And all the others. Verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation. Wait a minute. Brother? John didn't suddenly forget he was an apostle. 
He's showing that even first century apostles were not exempt from tribulation. What tribulation is John talking about here? His time on Alcatraz. I'm suffering in the trenches with you. I'm your partner in this. John is on the island of Patmos, but he was not there alone. Notice verse 10. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. It's the Lord's day on Alcatraz. It's Sunday. Early Christians began to meet on Sunday after Jesus' resurrection. They stopped worshiping on Saturday and started doing it on Sunday because Jesus rose on a Sunday. Sunday became the Lord's day. John is deprived of corporate worship, but he wasn't going to let that stop him from worshiping on the Lord's day. John is beaten and boiled, standing among rocky and rugged terrain, and he's singing about God's salvation, and then suddenly he hears a trumpet. Trumpets call troops to battle and congregations to worship. God spoke audibly to John, verse 11, saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. I want you to see, church, this is visual. Not write what you hear, but write what you see. John is writing to these churches located in modern-day Turkey. Each ancient city had a local congregation. John doesn't write to the church like all the churches make up one global church. He recognizes that there are local churches. Each church is going to receive a personal letter. Now, there are more than seven churches in these areas. Uh, the churches of Galatia are in this area. The church of Colossae is in this area. Why did God, through John, choose to only address seven churches and not five or nine or 11? Some have speculated that John had a special relationship with these seven, and that could be the case. But we can't deny that God wants to emphasize the number seven. John is on Patmos and circled on your map uh, in red, and he's writing to Christians on the mainland. He's addressed them in a certain order, uh, the, the order along the common postal route. First Ephesus, then Smyrna, then Pergamum, then Thyatira, then Sardis, then Philadelphia, finally Laodicea, the common postal route. That's a portrait of John. Now, a portrait of Christ. And may the Lord... Help us here. Verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. When John turned around, he sees seven golden lampstands. This imagery is not unfamiliar to the Bible. Zechariah 4 has a similar occurrence. Verse 20 of our text interprets verse 12 for us. In verse 20, Christ is speaking to John and he says, the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So the seven golden lampstands symbolically represent the seven churches John is writing. Jesus becomes our teacher and instructor in apocalyptic literature. He interprets for us. We, we can't mess this up. 
The seven golden lampstands represent the seven churches. You can take that to the bank. Now, remember, what was in the Old Testament tabernacle? A seven-branched golden lampstand. It's almost like John is being visually transported to a heavenly tabernacle. Verse 11. And in the, uh, excuse me, verse 13. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. Church, it's impossible for me to pull out all the Old Testament allusions. This passage is just dominated by them. But I must pull out one here. You know Revelation by knowing your Old Testament. This is Daniel Laic. This is an allusion to Daniel chapter 7 and chapter 10. I preached through the entire book of Daniel. I know you have all those sermons memorized. But, but let me refresh your memory anyway. Daniel had a vision in chapter 7 where he saw the Son of Man. In chapter 10, he describes the Son of Man, and it's nearly identical to the description we have in our text. This vision that John is seeing is drawn from Daniel. The Son of Man in Revelation 1 is the Son of Man in Daniel 7 and 10. Jesus is fulfilling Old Testament imagery. Son of Man was Jesus' favorite designation for himself. He used it 81 times in the Gospels. When people heard Jesus refer to himself as the Son of Man, they knew Daniel, and they were puzzled. Where are the streaks of lightning, long flowing robes, and the fire? The, the, the term Son of Man aroused expectations of redemption. And here in our text, the Son of Man is wearing a long robe. Remember the robe imagery through 1 Samuel? our last preaching series? Well, the last book of the Bible leaves us with one in a robe, a better Samuel. Jesus is wearing a priestly robe. This is picturing Jesus as, get this, the great high priest. Jesus is also wearing a golden sash. You may think of sashes that go diagonally from the shoulder down and back around, but this sash was like a golden belt. A belt that wasn't meant to hold anything up. This did not go around the waist, but it went around the chest. And it was similar clothing to what a high priest would wear in the tabernacle. Church, what is the Son of Man doing? What is he doing? He's doing priestly duties. Taking the office that belongs to him. What is he doing among the seven candlesticks? Walking. The exalted Christ walks among his churches, moving among the candlesticks. He's in the midst of his beloved bride. He's trimming wicks and carving wax, breathing life back into the flickering flames. He's making sure the candles don't go out. He's keeping his churches burning. The majestic Christ walks among his scattered churches. This portrait has more details. Verse 14. The hair of his head, the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. The Son of Man has white hair. It's stunningly and brilliantly white. A blizzard of white. We are in a youth-oriented society. We don't view white hair as honor as most cultures do. We, don't re we really don't respect the aging process either. 
White hair speaks of wisdom and dignity of age. But here it speaks of sinlessness and purity. The Son of Man has eyes like a flame of fire. He has an infallible gaze. All things are, are naked and open unto his eyes. He has penetrating intelligence, searching pupils. We associate getting old with, with fading of powers, especially eyesight. But this one with white hair misses nothing. He has sharp clarity. There is no deterioration. Verse 15, his feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. His feet glow. Remember in Daniel where Nebuchadnezzar had a dream of a massive, a massive image, and, and that image's feet had iron and clay mixed. The image represented the kingdoms of the world, it was flawed and weak, and that's why it failed and was smashed to pieces. It had flawed feet. But we have one here who has perfect feet. So many similarities between Revelation and Daniel. I thought about putting it on a chart. His voice is majestic, powerful, and effective. It, it's loud like the Niagara Falls. It's not the gentle sound of the ocean lapping against the sand. The voice of the risen Christ is arresting. Verse 16, in his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. Now, one of the things old Baldy Domitian did was print his own coins. Uh, can you imagine a living president putting his face on a quarter? It's a bit presumptuous, right? Well, Domitian minted coins with seven stars on it. All the people receiving this letter were walking around with coins in their pockets saying Domitian was the God of the universe on one side and it had seven stars on the other side. Jesus is calling Domitian out. I control the seven stars. They are in my right hand. You may chop off hands that are a threat to you, but you can't chop off this hand. The sword coming out of the mouth of the Son of Man speaks of power. At his word, destruction comes. Now, what would this have meant for these persecuted congregations and this persecuted John? They had been terrorized by the Roman sword. But Jesus, in a colorful way, says, the persecutors will face my sword. Some say the Roman sword was tongue-like in shape. Jesus has a sword where the tongue would be. And it's going to render judgment. You can't see the face of the Son of Man because it's brilliantly bright and shiningly shining. His face has more power than the sun. Get the white sunscreen on your nose because these rays will burn your nose off. Verse 17. <laughs> when I saw him... Let's stop here. When John saw the vision of the Son of Man, what did he do? Did he rush over and dab him up? When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. When John beheld the matchless splendor, the fatal brilliance, he was smitten to the ground. He's stunned. It's an immobilizing vision. 
What did John see? He saw the resurrected Christ. This is what happens when you encounter the majesty of Jesus Christ. John is not bowing down in a typical Middle Eastern way to show reverence. John is paralyzed by the glory of Christ. When Daniel saw the Son of Man in chapter 7, it dropped him. When Peter, James, and John saw Jesus transfigured on a mountain, it dropped them. This is what happens when you encounter the resurrected Christ. Tom Schreiner says, Clearly, John is deathly afraid and keenly aware of his sin and finiteness. See, culture wants a Jesus who is safe and cuddly. I don't find him in Revelation. In C.S. Lewis's novel, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, little Lucy and Susan ask Mr. Beaver, Is Aslan the lion safe? Aslan is the Christ figure in the story. Mr. Beaver, is Aslan safe? Safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. This is the trauma of glory. The realization that the Lord is not safe. He can't be domesticated by us. Taught to perform on command for us. He is not safe. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And he laid his right hand on me saying, Fear not. His right hand reassured John. The reason John shouldn't be afraid is not that Jesus isn't scary. The glory of the risen Christ is terrifying. The reason John shouldn't be afraid is because... Jesus is for him. He's terrifying and he's for us. In all three instances of Christ and his glory appearing, they have a common theme. In each, Christ says, do not fear. Daniel, do not fear. Peter, James, and John, do not fear. Here in Revelation, do not fear. The lion is ferocious and the lion is for you. Fear not. Fear not for, I like these next two words, I am. Fear not for, I am. That's Old Testament language. This is what God the Father used to refer to himself. Jesus is here claiming deity. Don't fear, I am. You find comfort, friend, based on who Jesus is. Verse 18, the living one. I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death in Hades. A flat line was not the end of the story for Jesus. He came back to life. And he came back holding some keys. Keys indicate authority and ownership. Hey, John, see the keys in my hand? They open and lock death's doors. They open and lock hell's gates. Christian, when you, like white-haired, feeble John, are nearing the end, don't be afraid of a door that Jesus has keys to. That's two portraits. That's the two portraits. John walking on a volcanic island and Jesus walking among his churches. A portrait with John having white hair and a portrait with Jesus having white hair. A portrait of one who thinks he's going to die and a portrait of another who's already died and came back to life. A human portrait and a divine portrait. Two portraits. Now five applications. Let's hope for the aha moment here. 
Application number one. You need a majestic Christ, not a therapeutic one. When Daniel saw Jesus, he hit the ground. When the inner circle of disciples saw Jesus, they hit the ground. When John saw Jesus, he hit the ground. And it was hard volcanic rock. Why is it when most pastors preach Jesus, it doesn't make you hit the ground? The Jesus preached in many churches will make you want to watch a Super Bowl with them. Share a bag of chips. John saw the risen Christ and he didn't go dab him up. Casualness is not the height of intimacy. Casualness may mean you don't actually know this Jesus. What is being presented in many churches is not the Christ of Revelation, but a mere therapist Christ. A good listener who makes all things about me. He's soft and cuddly. A pastor in Harlem used to joke about the Jesus preached in most pulpits, and he said, that Jesus wouldn't last 10 minutes in my neighborhood. <laughs> but the Jesus you just beheld will make some mourn from every neighborhood, including Harlem. He's not soft or cuddly. In fact, he's not safe. You need to encounter the terrible majesty of Jesus Christ that will wreck you and put you where you belong, on the ground. John is awed by Christ. Are you? I fear we preachers aren't preaching an awe-inspiring Christ anymore. Non-Christian, you are not a diamond in the rough. You are just rough. When you see Jesus for who he really is, only then will you see yourself for who you really are. You are a person who needs to be freed from your sins by the blood of Jesus Christ. You will either worship him or well at the sight of him. Repent right now and trust Jesus Christ as your Lord. You may have been fed a gospel that said you can have Jesus, but not have Jesus as Lord. You can be a Christian, but then decide later if you really want to follow him and be dedicated to him. It's a false gospel. Everyone who comes to Jesus comes to him by saying, you have my complete allegiance. Application number two. What sustained these suffering Christians? Seeing Jesus. When your job is dissolving, when your health is failing, when your spouse is cheating, when your children are screaming, when you've been boiled, what you need is a vision of Jesus. A biblical view of the resurrected Christ. Church, I want you to learn how to live under what's going to happen. Because if it hasn't fallen apart yet, it will. Now, if I were writing to you, and you were them, you were the seven churches, and I knew you were about to face some horrible persecution for being a Christian, I knew what was awaiting you if you remained faithful to Jesus Christ. If I wasn't sure if you were going to make it, if you were going to endure, if you were going to persevere, what in the world would I write to you? How you should educate your children. 
how to increase intimacy in marriage, who to vote for in the next presidential election. No, beloved. I would want to increase your vision of God. All that little petty therapeutic trash churches made your own will not sustain you in Alcatraz days. No, the only thing that will sustain you is an accurate portrait of the resurrected Jesus Christ. Because when you're lonely and hurting and scared, you need a lion who isn't safe but who is for you. Church, I have been entrusted with the precious word of God. So I cannot give you little self-help tips. I must give you Jesus. Application number three. The point of this text is to tax your mind beyond its ability by using human language to describe something above your comprehension. Now, that's a long, that, that's probably a run-on sentence. That's a long one. Let's, let's do that one again. The point of this text is to tax your mind beyond its ability. So you can pause there. The point of this text is to tax your mind beyond its ability. How? By using human language to describe something above your comprehension. John is using stock imagery to describe the unveiled, glorified, and exalted Jesus Christ. I want to caution you against over-interpretation. Trying to track down the source of each descriptive phrase or compile your own little catalog. You're not supposed to unweave the rainbow. Just behold the beauty. Let me give you an example. Let's say I wrote a note to my wife, Sarah. And I said, Sarah, you're beautiful. Your eyes are like doves, your neck like a swan, your cheek like roses, your hands like soft pillows. Rightly understood, that is a compliment. But if you try to draw that literally, that is not a compliment. Neck like a swan, hands like pillows, that's actually scary. Now let's move that over to our text. Don't attempt to recreate this picture literalistically. This is not meant for you to go home and draw a picture of Jesus. I don't think Jesus walks around with a sword coming out of his mouth and his feet on fire. We know this literature. We know this genre. Solomon described the beauty of his wife by saying, her teeth are like a flock of sheep. Draw that out. You want to marry that? The key to understanding this passage is found in a word that is used over and over again. It is the word like. Jesus is like this. He isn't this. He is like that. He's not actually that. Your teeth are like a flock of sheep. They aren't actually a flock of sheep. I've seen so many people do this with Revelation. And although it makes for some crazy pictures, it misses the point of the text. Revelation 1 does not reveal what Jesus looks like, but rather what he is like. Are you picking up what I'm laying down? Revelation, don't go searching Revelation 1 for what Jesus looks like. Search Revelation 1 for what he is like. Application number four. I was going to jump to this in the middle because I was so excited about getting to it, but I waited. 
Application number four. This is why you should never give up on the local church. With all its foibles and failures, God is walking among his churches. This is why you should never give up on the local church. With all its foibles and failures, God is walking among his churches. I want you to be... I want to be in a local church because Jesus is among his churches. A, a local church with membership and elders, pastors, and during the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's table, the weekly corporate gatherings on the Lord's day, congregational singing, faithful preaching. I want to be in all of that because we are one of his lampstands. When we meet... Jesus is working, walking around, trimming wicks and carving wax and breathing life back into the flickering flame. This is why you should have a dogged commitment to the local church. Jesus works on it and through it. I want to be in the church because Jesus is working here. Does that sound mystical? That's biblical. This is why we must love the church, cherish the church, serve the church. This is why you should not be a Christian that is separated from the local church. FFC is one of Jesus' candlesticks. Application number five. You're going to like this one. Your pastor didn't cover everything in the text. He skipped the part about angels. That is true. I did. Verse 20 said, the seven stars are the seven angels of the seven churches. I'll let you chew on that. And I'll unpack it next week when we move into Revelation chapter 2. Let's stand and pray together. Father, you told us in verse 20 this is a mystery. I know this mystery is not a puzzle that baffles. It's an eternity to explore. Thank you for your good, hearty word today. It was meat, nutritious enough to sustain us. Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church. We gather on Sundays at 495 Hugh Hunter Road in Oak Grove, Kentucky, and are a short drive from Fort Campbell and Hopkinsville, Kentucky, as well as Clarksville, Tennessee. For more information, visit our website, myfaithfamilychurch.com.